Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick reminder that the fifth session of the 2022 Darkwater Project Colloquium Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation is in your Modern Art Notes podcast feed. It should have landed there sometime on Monday evening. The fifth session addresses historical American art as informed by Matthew Fry Jacobson's book, Whiteness of a Different Color, European Immigrants in the Alchemy of Race. Please join us for the sixth and final session of Darkwater's Colloquium next Thursday, November 17th at 3.30 in the afternoon Eastern Time. You can sign up at the Darkwater Project's Instagram account, which is at the Darkwater Project. On to this week's show. First up, I'm joined by Vincenzo De Bellis, the curator of the retrospective Giannis Kunellis in Six Acts. It's at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis through February 26th, 2023, at which point it will travel to the Museo Humex in Mexico City. Giannis Kunellis was a significant figure in the Arte Povera movement of the 1960s and 70s. His work was on the vanguard of melding sculpture, installation, and performance, which of course is common in today's artistic practice. Among the works Kunellis is best known for is an untitled work from 1967 in which he installed 12 horses, 12 live horses, in an art gallery. That work has been recreated and reinstalled many times since. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. Giannis Kunellis in Six Acts is accompanied by a catalog published by The Walker. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $55. On the second segment, Leo Mezzo on Storied Strings, the Guitar in American Art. But first, Vincenzo de Bellis, after the break. On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection. You can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso Cut Papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso Cut Papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso Cut Paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31st, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Philip Guston Now, showcasing a retrospective of the artist's 50-year career. See Guston's shift from abstract expressionism to humanism as his art reflects social injustice and excavates the anxieties of personal conviction. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Philip Guston. And we're back. Vincenzo de Bellis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. Giannis Kunellis liked to say that he was a painter, which seems, I guess, in a way, intentionally provocative. But over and over again, he made things that would have seemed, you know, fairly routine if presented in two dimensions held in a re- rectangular frame but which he then expanded into three dimensions, often in a kind of vaguely theatrical way. How might a work like Untitled 12 Horses from 1969 be a good example of what he was talking about? Well, let me start saying with saying something that he would have said. The word painter in Greek is, well, there's, there's two words in which Greek language describes the act of painting. So what we would consider the painting, let's say a house painting, coloring the wall, that's the word is the painter that we, we think it's a, what we describe as a painter. But the, the word the artist painter has a specific name, which is zoographos, which means basically image maker, image maker, image creator. So in this sense, for him, he was and always has been a painter. So he always believed that his work was about image making. 
how the 12 horses are something like that. So he, he believed that the art of the previous art, the, let's say the art, that, by the way, he was doing for a few years at that, at that point, because he really started 10 years before, were traditional bidimensional works on canvas mainly. So the space that where he, where he was invited to, to make uh, the show, which is was called Lattico in, in Rome, which was one of the most exciting galleries at the time, if not the most exciting gallery at the time in Italy for sure and in Europe, was a garage basically. And that space kind of instigated him to create something different. Of course, you know, Yanis was already like many, many artists and not just in Italy, not just in Europe, around the globe, were kind of thinking a way to get out of the traditional materials. In that specific case, what he wanted to achieve was really to consider something alive that at the same time was around the, the walls, like paintings would be, and still like a painting would be. But actually, with the live component, they would be actually still but not still. Therefore, this is the, the reason why that work is can be considered a painting in its own right. There's another thing. Thing that's very interesting for Kunell is, is which is documentation of the works. When there's a live component, Kunell has always chose one picture and one only. That is kind of the documentation of that specific action. And that's another clear kind of example of how we conceive that work, those works specifically as a framed object. Is part of that the rectangular nature of the space in which he was working, that the rectangular space itself referred to the classic format of a painting? Absolutely. Yes, the space itself, the way you would enter in the space, the way you would face the back wall and then the two side walls, it was a frame within the frame. And so the idea of kind of having those objects, in this case, those live animals, kind of coming off the, the walls, the three walls, but framed within the frame of the entrance of the, sh of the space would create that kind of feeling of being in a live painting, if it, if it makes sense what I'm saying. Oh, it does. It's part of the fun of, it's part of, the fun of this part of Canellis' oeuvre. How did he expand from work such as that and from 1969 into making works that melded performance and and what he would have considered an address of painting. I mean, what are some of the ways he, I don't know, rolled the ball down the hill? So he started really, actually, his relationship with live events and kind of the way, in his way, painting would have expanded his two dimensions into something three-dimensional, but also with a time-based component, started already back in the 60s. There's an image that, you might have seen it's very widely published and that's him kind of dressed like Hugo Ball, kind of wrapped into paintings, his own paintings, the paintings with the letters. And what happened in that picture, I mean, the, you see the picture, but what happened when the picture was taken, the photo was taken is that Cunelis was singing the fragments of its own, its own paintings, kind of singing those letters like they were poetry. So that's really the first example in which basically the what's on the canvas gets kind of animated within his own body. And then he, he kind of steps away from that for a few years. And then he continues over starting from 1967 when he has a, there's a, so that, that's also another very, well-known image where he kind of creates a box again, which of course refers to a frame and he puts himself into the box, kind of facing the box and with a mirror where you can see from the other side, you can see the face. So basically you see his body from the back, but looking at the, at the mirror, you see his face, which is an illusion of being again in front of a painting at the same time being the painting itself. So those two early examples are, really, I think, a good way to tell the way he envisioned how the two dimensions would become then sort of alive. Now, there's a, between 1967 and 1975, actually 1977, he has created what I believe is, is most interesting part of his production, which is exactly all these works that were 
the live action and the object kind of are intertwined and they play with each other. And those up then stopped doing that until weirdly enough until 2016 when he made another one and then actually he, he passed away the year later. There's many of them that I would like to describe, but all of them have one thing in common. They are very brief moments of performances. So there's no narrative. It's always human bodies except for the animals that we've described with the with the horses and they are they look like still basically or almost still and the the other thing is music is a big part of it but the music is also not always is not that it's a fragment of music it's always bits and pieces of something as the bits and pieces are of are bits and pieces are the the movement or the moments you see those actions so speaking of this activating playfulness, this act, this body activating, space activating, almost anti-market playfulness, was Kunellis interested in, paying attention to, engaged with Viennese actionism? Yes and no, meaning that he was very well informed about everything that was happening around him and actually was also very vocal about things that were happening at the same time, his art was not was rarely influenced by what other people were doing. But if you ask me personally, I would say that there's definitely it was a, it's a zeitgeist. It's so it's it's kind of the spirit of the of the moment, and I think that desire of kind of expanding the two dimensions is widely present in many many places and. The Viennese actionism is one of them. It's not only because if you just think of, you know, or Japanese art at the same time with Gutai, exactly. So it's basically, but the actions that takes place with this kind of, with this art is way, is way kind of is stronger and more present than what happens in, in Yanni's works. I think Yanni's works, it becomes more active and more kind of violent, if you let me the, this word when the time passes and when he moves to more traditional sculptural works, although they're not really traditional, but if you understand what I'm saying is that then the use of materials kind of becomes more present and where the, the material beca- become more performative themselves. But at the beginning, when the live action was in place, they were very, very subtle, more elegant, and if you, if you wish, romantic activations. So to kind of set up the next couple questions I have, I think it might be helpful to talk briefly about how you presented this show and how you've done that in a way that is as true to the way Kunellis worked and showed as possible, which is to say, why did you decide that the chronological posthumous retrospective wasn't quite the right way to go here? And what did you do instead? So when we, when Yanis passed, when Kunellis passed away, I kind of thought myself what, how I would approach this because for Cornelis making a show was basically making a piece of art. I mean, the, the works were, the, the exhibitions were the reason why he made works. And, and remake, making an exhibition was really an action, an action of re- reactivations of old works with the intrusion of new works, etc. So I've decided together with the family and together with the state and the archive to do, at least to start from one point, that would have been for sure what he would have done, meaning avoiding the chronological aspect. Kunelis never believed that his art was going, you know, in a steady line from A to Z, and was always going in circles, going back to subjects over and over again. And so in honor of this approach to art and life, we actually selected six themes they could have been way more, and or we could have chosen even less. But six is the number. It's a specific number that I can tell you why it's six. But the idea was to create six teams and kind of addressing each team as a mini retrospective. So each room is a sort of retrospective within the retrospective. And in each room, each of those what we called acts, you find works from basically every decade of this production. One of the subjects of Kunellis's life and work that you explore is the journey, travel. Given Kunellis's background and, and given the history of Greece and Italy and their positioning on the Mediterranean Sea, it's easy to see 
to think of biographical reasons why why the journey and travel, its history and its present would have been interesting to Canalis. What are some of the most important ways in which he engaged with the journey and travel in his work? Well, first of all, it is very linked to his bio and to his story and the way in which there are several ways materials the the use of material and specific materials is is definitely the most evident so if you think of materials coming from boats chunk of boats or trains or burlap sacks that were shipped from place to place or the um, other materials that stones that he collected in different places all these become part of of works from the 60s, the late 60s onward. Basically, every place where he, he went, every place that he visited, kind of as a trace in his work, whether in that, whether it's during the show that he did in that specific location or afterwards. In this way, the idea of the journey is definitely in each work where those materials are. But at the same time, the journey is also the subject. The iconography, if you wish, of the works themselves. I mean, the uh, the boat is not only, the, the boats are not only, fragments of the boats are not only the materials, but they often are the iconography of the work. There are several works where the boat is present. There are several works where the train is present. There are several works where the beds are present. And the bed is literally the place where he used to crash when he moved from place to place. So all of this, both within the material and within the, the iconography in itself, really speak a lot about his journey, which, and also the way he described himself. I mean, he always described himself as a Ulysses without Ithaca, where he would always travel from place to place without going back home. You mentioned burlap sacks. One of my favorite Cunellises is an untitled 1969 work made up of, I think, six burlap sacks that are kind of stretched toward a rectangular metal frame. It's a very witty and and really kind of, I mean, just like laugh out loud, funny commentary on what a painting is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that work, now that you mentioned it, Tyler, that work is uh, extremely important for several reasons. It is what you just said. It's a, a take on painting. And we've already discussed about how important this subject is. But it's also important for something that a lot of people don't know. The size of that work gave from that time, that moment onward, gave the size of each individual iron sheet that he has used afterwards. So that's the size of a, of a, of a bed, of a double bed. And after using that work, which, which to some extent is a prototype of all the subsequent work where he used, instead of the canvas, he uses the iron sheets, the iron plates, that those have the same identical size of that work. So it's not just incredibly visually compelling, but also conceptually becomes really fundamental for his practice. Abrupt shift. Why were doorways of interest to Canellis and... What did he, I don't know what the right phrase is here, but what, what, what did he install within them, if you will? <laughs> <laughs> the block doors, which is the, the series of works you're referring to, really started in 1969. And honestly, it was really a, it all goes back to the place where he first made that work. The work was done the first time in 1969 in San Benedetto Toronto, which is a small town, in the on the east coast of Italy, in the kind of mid middle Italy, and there was a biennial, very unknown biennial, and he participated, and he was offered a room, and in this room, this, there was a door that would kind of be a passage for for an useless space, and so what he decided is that he would block the door, and really make a painting using the the, the door. So we go back to the very same subject over and over again. At the same time. That's one of the first works where the relationship with the architecture becomes super crucial. And in specifically, the doors were of interest because of what they represent. They represent the frame in which people go through, right? And so blocking them would have meant that you have to face them because you never face a door. You always cross a door. You always go through a door. 
And so facing it would be for you to stop and see backwards, but also see what you have in front of you, which is the work is work. What kinds of things did he, you know, excuse the language again, what kinds of things did he put in, in portals, in doorways? All the, all the different materials that you can imagine. It started with the just stones. And then from, from just stones, it started inserting in some of the block doors, stones and uh, plaster, fragments of plaster, of statue made in plaster, kind of replicas of old statues, ancient statues. One example is one, uh, the one title 1982 that it's part of the Walker collection where you see clearly uh, stones and in some portions you see those fragments popping up. And then at one point he also shifted into just blocking the doors with just plasters, a uh, fragment of plaster statues. And then he used books, he used rolls of several materials it doesn't come to me, lead, rolls of lead. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anything, sometimes it was, in other instances, was wood. So it really depended by the materials that you could grab in those places, but also materials that would have a reason in that specific location. One of the key issues that booms out of the catalog, and I presume the show too, is that site specificity was often really important to Canellis, that he really, really often made things for specific places at specific times to be shown in specific contexts. And of course, site specificity is, is our term. It was a term that came into being after Canellis started doing things that we would now call site-specific. So how and why did he develop the idea or the understanding that this was a thing that mattered? Well, it all goes back to the idea of journey, I meaning the place, each place, each place where he went meant something for him. And he always wanted to, wanted to keep a trace of that passage that he made. So, you know, for, let me tell you this through a, the way we talk about the works, right? Every, every work, because they're all entitled, they always bring the nickname of the people that know the work or simply talk about the works are, oh, untitled Dusseldorf. Uh, 1978. That means that it was made for that specific show, and that's the way he would describe them. So most of the time, the works were not only the site-specific for the objects that he would find, but really specific because of the need of making that work in that specific location. Now, it's slightly different from what we think of the site-specificity means right now, meaning that not necessarily each work is specifically addressing a local topic, which is what happens very often with site specificity, with the concept or with the material. This has happened several times, but for Yannis was more important that the material were coming from there and more, more than what the subject would have meant. So in other words, if I do, if Yannis is invited to do a show at Museo di Capodimonte in Naples, he's gonna work on lead not because of the what lead means in that specific location, although clearly has a, a reason for doing it, but because he could get that, that specific object in that specific location. Yeah, no, I think you are, because I, I think, you know, for, for especially American audiences, you know, they'll think of somebody like Robert Smithson, who is exploring some of the same questions and some of the same interests in different ways in the U.S., I want to wrap up with a big picture question, and perhaps this seems so obvious that it might go without mention, but in the last half decade, probably a little bit longer, American art museums have substantially stopped doing significant retrospectives, or even for that matter, mid-career shows of European artists. And I think we all know some of the reasons why. I mean, the impact of the pandemic on travel and research for one the impact and dominance the art market has on U.S. art museums for another, the ways in which American art museums have responded to social upheavals with a strategy born from false binaries and entirely dependent on representation as a strategy, and so on. So you have spent years now, including, <laughs> including some of those pandemic years, working on a North American, United States and Mexico, retrospective of a European artist. 
if you found yourself thinking about how it's useful and important to make arguments for why American art institutions should go back to re-engaging with Europe and European artists? Well, first of all, th thank you for the question, because I think it's really important. And at the same time, it also gives me the chance of explaining the whys. Because to be honest with you, it's not been easy. And probably a little, there's been a little ju judgment about doing this. And don't get me wrong. I had no chances. If you ask me why you did it, because that's who I am. And that's my story. And in a moment where we need to also speak for what we can speak. And that's something I can speak about as an Italian with my story, where I'm from. I come from a place that it's across the, the, the Mediterranean from where Yanis was born. So there's a lot of my personal interest. There's a lot of my personal bio. There's a lot of my personal understanding. And that's one part of the answer. The second part of the answer is that the Walker has historically been a place where Italian art and not just Italian art has played a major role. And so this is not the first and most likely won't be the last show of an Italian artist at the Walker. I mean, I describe him as an Italian artist because he would say, I mean, a Greek person and by an Italian artist. And we did, you know, 1966 Fontana, 1972 Mertz. 19, in 2001, the big Arte Povera show, and now in 2022, Kunelis. So there's a history there, and there's a, on which, a legacy on which I, I built on. But at the same time, I also have to say, the responses, the way in which the museums are responding to the social, we need to respond to that. And the fact that museums are doing it is is definitely the right path. Now, Someone can argue that maybe it's a little bit of an overreaction. On some extent, though, I, I believe that that's, it's very important. It is very important to readdress the rebalance what's been for years, this balance and wrong balance of the, of the narrative. But Kunelis, besides being my hero, it's also an artist that has been always kind of transpassing really his own identity and has been always interested in going from place to place, exploring the identities of each locations and really speak for them or speak about them. So to some extent, I think the show, although it's a retrospective of a traditionally kind of Western artist, 100%, is also an homage to someone that has been at the center of the world, for lack of a better word, and always been kind of migrating from place to place, whether it was his real migration to Italy or just the temporary migration from place to place to do shows. So I think it's a very timely show, although him as a person represents kind of the traditional canon. Yeah, no, I, the, the, the way art museums have almost uniformly addressed the present through strategies oriented around representation rather than strategies that welcome in investigation and that build broader narratives across more kinds of oeuvres and periods is simplistic in extremis. And yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, you know, I think, Tyler, and I, I want to clarify this just because those are very important topics and me being a white European curator privileged, I want to make sure that it's clear what I'm saying is that However simplistic and however it is, it is absolutely needed. The problem, and I want to say this very clearly, is that showing is not the answer, but studying is the answer to this. We can show as much as possible, but if all those artists don't get enough time from us to be studied, researched, and historically put into the place where they belong, then it becomes a simply simplistic answer. So, and I'm not alone in thinking this. A lot of African-American great art historians who I admire profoundly, they would agree on this. And it is, we need to spend time, give them time and give ourselves time to really go through the unbalance that has been put in place for many, many years. Listeners will remember what Rado Turing said, shared from Frank Bowling's writings 
on the podcast a few weeks ago. Vincenzo De Bellis, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you very much. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Leo Mazo joins me to discuss his new exhibition, Storied Strings, The Guitar in American Art, at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. It's up through March 19, 2023, when it will travel to the Frist Art Museum in Nashville. The exhibition follows artists' interest in the guitar as a visual subject, revealing its cultural significance as a tool that reveals class, gender, and identity, and that amplifies protest and progressive change. The exhibition catalog was published by the VMFA. It's available from the museum for $40. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Leo Mazo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. About a decade ago now, you wrote a book called Thomas Hart Benton and the American Sound. And now you've organized a vast exhibition on the guitar and American art. So what about the study of how painting, or at least mostly painting, about how painting addresses and represents sound continues to interest you? Well, I think that Americans in particular are very famous for taking the right to speak, the right to be heard, to take that and taking that very seriously. And it, it figures in political discourse, in pluralist politics. It figures in religion, the whole idea of getting the word. I think that sounds are often what are mediated, whether it's horses or an automobile or a trumpet or a guitar painters often try to depict sonically relayed information and i and i think it's kind of being a master of the the obvious here but what's at stake in so many disparate works is who gets to sound and who hears what are there more guitars do you think in american art than pianos or something else because as i was reading the catalog and i'm sure this is true for other people as well, and people who've already seen the show. We're, we're taping this just after the show opened. You know, it doesn't strike me that American art is nearly as full of saxophones or drums as it is of guitars. I mean, one of the things the catalog convinced me of, even on just a first perusal, is, oh my God, there are a lot of guitars. <laughs> to, to be fair, Tyler, I was pretty deep in the weeds of every database for a good four years. So, um, are there more guitars than pianos in American art? I would say probably so. And I think that, you know, some of the answers for why the guitar and why not exhibitions of other musical instruments, you can't just say, well, the guitar is u- ubiquitous. Well, why is it ubiquitous? Well, 
It's portable, it's relatively affordable. The repertoire, at least the basic repertoire, is not rocket science. I mean, it can very quickly become that. Not unlike a handful of other instruments like the piano or the banjo, because of the visual culture of the guitar, it's very possible to see a guitar much more than you hear one. Guitars, not unlike ukuleles, lutes, and other plucked chordophone or just stringed in instruments, fit in the picture plane quite well. So those are some of the reasons why we... Uh, I, I've actually reckoned with this for quite some time. I mean, I, I have... On my computer, I have a massive banjo database of banjos in Amer American art. I didn't do that with good guitars because guitars, I think, appear even, even more. As I read through the catalog for the show, I found myself thinking, huh, following guitars through American art, and, and it should be noted, guitars enter American art around the 1830s, following guitars through American art kind of helps us understand a certain American social history. We see ideas core to the American nation kind of playing out across the show. Was that part of the attraction to the subject for you? Yeah, I think that as a curator, as an art historian working in an art museum, I like to think of a museum walls as a place where stories can unfold, which is not to say that connoisseurship or stylistic evolution is not important. They are important. But I think coterminous, you know, parallel with such formal things is the narrative content of art. And I, I'm interested in, in that. I mean, and that doesn't make me special. I think that the most formalist of connoisseurs are interested in subject matter too. And it's not that I'm not interested in issues of quality and sumptuousness. And indeed, a lot of the most social realist pictures that you'll find here at BMFA are easy on the eyes too. They're, I mean, they, they have their share of visceral, formal attractiveness, certainly. But sometimes that attractive modeling of paint can help tell some vital stories. And the guitar in particular, indirectly and sometimes directly, can address stories that might go untold or undertold. And we can talk about that. But getting to your question, though, I think that you're absolutely right. The guitar, it's not an index, it's not a reflection, but it works with other icons to be a gauge of some well-known and not so well-known factors in American cultural his history. You're absolutely right. One of the things you noted in one of your catalog essays was that, you know, a guitar is not a narrative instrument, but by playing a, a guitar and singing a song, a guitar enables the performance of narrative. And I think one of the things that happens over the course of the show, and we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the beginning of the show in a moment, but I think one of the things that happens over the course of the show is that narrative becomes more important to the artists. You know, maybe early in the show, in the in the early to mid-19th century, the guitar is there as, as maybe a prop of privilege or as a, I don't know, foil isn't the right word. You're right, but that's a isn't that a narrative too, though, in a sense? I, yeah, that's where, no, absolutely. I and mean, that I as, the, as, the, as time narrative. goes on, it becomes painters and other artists become more interested in the guitar as an right. instrument of democracy. Right, there is something... It's hard to put one's finger on this, but there is something very egalitarian about the guitar. And yeah, portability, affordability is part of it. But I kind of think of the guitar, these are some mixed metaphors I, I, at best that I offer to you here. But I think of the guitar as sort of like, think of the guitar as a road, a road down which either the expressive notes will travel or the singer's lyrics will travel. So the so the guitar is in a kind of in a, in a real sense, it's it's an armature for it sounds jargony to say this, but it is a discursive tool, meaning that it it is communicate it figures prominently in expression and communication. I mean, very obvious examples of this would be something like the bending of notes and blues or something like that. But that's only the tip of the the iceberg, I think. 
Let's go back into the 19th century with some of yes. the earlier works in the show and in the catalog. There's a spread in the catalog. I don't remember if both works are in the show or not. I probably should have written that into my notes. A painting by Amasta Hewins and a painting by um, Thomas P. Rossiter, in which languid people, in this case women of privilege, are, I don't know, sort of framed by guitars less than they are actively using them. How might we think of how guitars begin to work their way into American painting? One of the first drawings, and it may be the first drawing, of a guitar produced on American shores that has survived anyway. It's on loan from the Gibbs Museum of Art. It's by Thomas Middleton. And even in this, this is it's limited in 1827. It's, it's the Charleston scene. It's in the first cha- chapter. And you see beverages on the table. And you see people playing. There's a Benjamin West and other paintings on the wall. There's a bunch of paintings on the wall and top heads. (laughs) Yes. But there's also a good guitar player. And to the right of the guitar player is a guy playing the guitar case as if it's a cello. And obviously they've been drinking. But what we learned right off the bat is that because of that whole portability, affordability, and importability, it's it's easy to bring it over overseas, which these guitars would have been at this this date. Martin doesn't come to the U.S. until the early eighteen until eighteen thirty three or so. We realize again to be a master of the obvious that the guitar is a very social instrument. I don't want to say it's made to be played with and for others, but it's conducive to that. Now, the works you're talking about, the Amasa Hewins. That is a really, this is part of a series of works he did of a woman in a study, kind of a, a very vernacular Americanized Vermeer woman by the window kind of, kind of thing. But look what's on top of her. There's a birdcage on top of her. Notice that she's sitting at a desk, I believe, and the guitar is not being played. It's leaning up there. And on the floor is what looks like a folio of drawings. And so you get the sense that all of these things, drawing, writing, you know, epistolary activities and playing the guitar, these are things that merge manual and mental facilities. And I think that from in the depiction of women, the guitar often appears what I'm about to say, you could also say, well, isn't this true for men too? But for women, it appears as an emblem of accomplishment. It's a way to impart gravitas to a sitter. But the Hewins you mentioned is, is a toughie because there's the birdcage. Birdcage imagery rhymes with the domesticity themes throughout, well, Dutch Baroque art for starters and Flemish Baroque art. There are a lot of onion layers to peel on that painting. The other work you talk, talked about is also very en- enigmatic. Uh, Rossiter's Reception, which is supposedly a descendant of his, writes about it as a conversazione, a sort of a, a get-together. And it looks like an, a, a rather standard artist reception. This is a studio. Uh, I know you have the catalog in front of you. I think like John Kensett shared a room with Ross. Rossiter shared a studio in Europe. And so this is a get-together. And in some ways, this is kind of similar to that somewhat play, playful Middleton drawing of the work on loan from the Gibbs, insofar as the guitar finds its way readily into social situations. The funny thing about the Rossiter is that a man is holding the guitar and looking at us as if he's playing it, but he's almost certainly not playing it because somebody because the people are talking about the painting. We see some, we see two people pointing at the painting. I think the there's a mall is. stick. There's a mall stick or some type of brush that's pointing to it. Yep, yep, yep. Someone pointed this out to me recently. It, it's it's not an unsuccessful painting by any means, but it's a very busy work. I think that one of the women is holding an embroidery hoop, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe even two of them. I mean, it's a little hard to tell what one or the other. But yeah, I mean, there's lots. There's a lot going on. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> and, and, and one thing you'll see when you're here, Tyler's, it's not a huge painting. You know, on, 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 in that same room is a ginormous Julian Alden Weir, Idle Hours. This is not that. I, I can't tell you what it is off, offhand. It's not a small painting, but it, it's, it's very densely loaded and charged with fig, figures, yes. 
One more thing on the humans. It's it's a fascinating. It's from the Wadsworth. It's a fascinating painting. There's a picture, a painting hanging on the wall behind the woman. It's a picture of a sunset. Sunsets can be a couple of different things in American art, but in the 1830s, they are almost always referencing George Berkeley's famous line about westward the course of empire and civilization following the setting sun. So here is a woman with drawing and music, flowers outside her window, botany. America is a civilized country. We right. Of course, here. Berkeley is versus all the planting arts. Right. And, right. Um, I am going to skip over the Gilded Age because I like to. <laughs> and I want to jump into Romare Bearden, both because the Virginia MFA has one of the great Romare Beardens acquired it in the last decade. And as you note in the catalog, Bearden made a number of works with guitars over the length oh, yeah. of his career, which was really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. So why does Bearden do guitars and then keep doing guitars over, over you know, a quarter century or more? Well, this is a restatement of the problem, of course, but guitars are ubiquitous and they figure prominently in visual culture. And some, now not, not the two Beardens that are illustrated in the catalog, but there are a number of collage, you know, pasted pay papers. Oh yeah, of good guitars for him to choose from. So I think that a lot of it goes back to he's very he's very interested in music and in sound in general. He's interested in the sound producing capability of human beings, but also trains. And I think that. You know, he befriended and worked alongside musicians such as Fats Waller and Duke Ellington. They, they, they were actually among his first patrons. Um, a friend of mine, Professor Shaw Smith at Davidson College, has discussed how Bearden's collages replace linear perspective, you know, like a Renaissance box, with what Shaw Smith calls a, uh, a sound box spatial scheme in which the artist's fragmented shapes and rhythmically dispersed papers might approach the sonic properties of blues and selected vernacular cadences of mid 20th century life. Now that maybe sounds a little vague and a little bit of a stretch, but at the very least, I mean, could we, maybe we could agree that the collage medium offers a lot of musical points of comparison, a lot of sonic analog, analogs, how the parts become a whole in music and collage. Whether that's true or not, it does, it does not answer your question, though. I don't know. I mean, you could say that any given artist in this book is uncommonly bright, but I don't know how many of them had the musical knowledge of Romare Bearden to be. Mm. Never mind that he's an art historian as well as an art artist. He knew a lot about music and pianos and guitars and sometimes banjos take pride of place in his work. I go off a little bit on a limb in the three folk musicians that's now in the collection of Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Whatever he intended, we are left with one instrument, a banjo, traditionally Af African, Senegal, Gambia, and two instruments, guitars that are Western European, Spain, Italy, France, Germany. And the guitar takes center stage there. Now we can't, you know, enter some mindset and try to guess what he had in mind here. But the visual evidence we're left with tells us that the guitars occupies more square footage in this collage than the banjo does. And again, maybe I'm overstepping here, but of course the band, the guitar does not have the the racist minstrel evocations that the banjo does. It just doesn't. It's a fascinating picture. Uh, the, the only colors in the picture are the three primaries plus green, which of course was an original primary, you know, before the 17, what, 40s, two guitars. And as you note, the figure wearing or holding the banjo is is kind of wearing a mask. He's, he's almost muted. It's one of the, I'm rather enjoying that the VMFA has found a way to include it in every exhibition it's done in the last several years. Well, um, hey, he no, says no. making only barely a joke. <laughs> well, it was in Dirty South and uh, yep. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think our paper conservatives are going to let this travel again for, for a while, but nope. and this exhibition is going to the Frist in Nashville and the Bearden will be going 
But when you come to the exhibition, one of the things you'll see, what you'll see to the left, the Royal Mary Beard and Colossus Three Folk Musicians, is a work that I think was also in Dirty South, Palmer Hayden's Untitled Figure. It's one of the first images. It's, I think it's reproduced in the acknowledgments of the book. And I thought about, about this, this reclining figure. You know, this also has trumpet and drum imagery in it, but the guitar is centered. But what made me think about this is you mentioned one of the figures in the Bearden collage wearing a, having something of a mask-like face. I think it was Richard Wood, Woodward, an emeritus curator here at the MFA, who told me about the similarity between the face in the Palmer Hayden picture and the role of the mask in ceremonies for the Dan peoples in Af- Africa mm-hmm. and how ma- the masquerade being a way to summon the world of the spirits. Well, here this guy is dreaming and he dreams of a guitar and um, who knows where uh, Palmer Hayden got this imagery from. He was one of the first European American artists, one of the first African American artists rather to study in Europe. It's literally a fraction of a small fraction of the size of the beard, but it's, it's as fascinating, I think. We'll have both of them on manpodcast.com, of course. I thought one of the most thought-provoking parts of the catalog was how it looks at how the guitar emerges as a protest instrument and how artists are part of that identification of the guitar with protest, perhaps beginning with a 1947 Elizabeth Catlett that's, that's in the show. How do artists engage with the guitar as protest instrument? How is it useful as such? It's a good, good question. I worked very close, closely on this. A lot of the work for this chapter was done by my intern, um, Sydney Nichols, uh, from University of Arkansas. It was really. It's kind of weird that this is one of the shortest chapters in the book. One of the well, let me let me jump in for a second. It might be a short chapter, but the chapter continues in the succeeding chapters, if you will. Like once the yeah, subject yeah. is raised, it stays in the project. Exactly. I mean, it's very, it's 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 very. You you could you could retort and say, how many of these images do not get into politics at some level? But some of the obvious ones, you have this work by Al Al Almuller, a picture of Woody Guthrie. He has the paper affixed to his guitar that says, this machine kills fascists. I think Pete Seeger or, or Woody Guthrie himself would put this on his banjo as well. This was acquired from a Michigan auto workers plant, or rather munitions plant. And you can imagine that context, this machine would kill fascists. Think of a tank, think of a missile. Well, can a guitar kill fascists? In fact, I even called the 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 tie the ex the chapter "What Makes a Guitar Political." I think I think sometimes it, it's good to leave to ask a question as opposed to assume that one knows the end all be all answer of it. I think that when people start appropriating, when you in, envision the guitar as a means to critique and wage dissent, that makes a guitar political. And is this political art per se? I guess so. What about Annie Leibovitz's fo- photograph from the uh, Bruce Springsteen for the Bruce from um, Born the in the Mid-80s. USA photo sessions? Exactly. I remember hearing that Ronald Reagan thought this was a celebration, not a cr- critique of the United States. The song Born in the USA. So it's very those not in a certain musical culture at a point in time might misunderstand. What Springsteen was about, I don't think people misunderstand that now at all. I would, I, I would guess not. I, I, I certainly hope they, they don't. But here you have this mainstream artist holding his workhorse Fender Telecaster. The Telecaster was the first commercially viable solid body electric guitar. And um, it was quick, quickly replaced, well, not replaced, but Fender not long after, after that began making the Stratocaster, which is much more curvy, even has an inner contour to accommodate the rib cage of the player, more ergonomic, you might say. I have both the Stratocaster and a Telecaster, and I, I love the Telecaster, but his Telecaster is really beat up. And Why is it? 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it, you, you can see in photo more. after photo over the years of like chunks of wood missing from it and such. Well, you, you maybe also you may you may be conflating him. How can we not with w- Willie Nelson's uh, beat up Martin? Which yeah, that too. Yeah, but there there he is wearing jeans, a t shirt, a cap, an automotive, baseball. Who knows? In his back pocket, and he appears to be traversing the American flag. One of the points here for Springsteen, I think, he said one had the sense that the flag was up for grabs. And, and I think he's talking about the meaning and, you know, a, a blue collar working sensibility is covered by the flag as much as those Gilded Age aestheticized Madame X's you were talking about earlier. A question is, could he have done this without the Fender Telecaster? I'm not sure. By the way, it's so early that it has a... Uh, on the neck, I believe it says either Broadcaster or Esquire. The Fender Telecaster was originally called the Broadcaster, but Gretsch apparently had a drum line called Broadcasters as well, so they called it Telecaster, mm. rhyming with mm. the nascent television medium. Before we close out, that's a good transition to mentioning that I, you know there are about 30 actual guitars in the show. What did you want to do what point did you want to make what connections did you want attendees to walk away with from getting to see not just guitars as painted or in video art or photographed but seeing the actual darn things well i think that early on there's a very small room dedicated to uh martin guitars and their legacy there's also work by uh, a guitar by ashbourne one of the things that you get early on from the Martins is you realize that the first American guitar company was interested in tone and durability, but they were equally interested in aesthetics from the so-called curling edges of the so-called mustache-style bridge on a guitar to the headstock, meaning where the tuning keys are, which looks like a profile of a violin scroll. Some of these instruments following on their Austrian or German prototypes have the fretboard take tapers in as it approaches the sound hole. So I want people to know that the guitar is an OMJ dart in its own right. We have one guitar in the exhibition in a section called Cold Hard Cash. We have one guitar in the exhibition that has so much mother of pearl on the fingerboard inlaid and abalone shell, I guess throughout that this is a presentation grade guitar it's truly meant to be gifted it's meant to be posed with it's meant to be seen it's meant to be put in one's parlor or or den or what what have you if you want to play it it may not sound so great and that's not (laughs) so so that tendency is very much there i also think that guitars often rhyme with strains and visual and visual it's just a standard cultural history Uh, we have a few Guitars that are called cowboy guitars. They're three quarters, they're, they're smaller size good guitars. And they were marketed in the light of, on the, on the coattails of people like Tex Ritter and Gene Autry, this movie phenomenon, the filmic Western. And the guitar provides a, a, a canvas, a, a tabula rasa on which to stencil cowboy culture. But it's in a section called, a small section called Cowboy Guitars or something like this. But it could be in a section called Cold Hard Cash because the whole point of these guitars is to respond to and to promote those filmic cowboys riding off into their celluloid sunsets. And there are later guitars. uh, There's a Gibson Explorer that had been played by Eric Clapton of all people. The, The Explorer was at one point called the Futura it has these ang- angles that rhyme with Cold War space age is- aesthetics. There's a Gretsch silver jet played by uh, Brian Setzer from the Stray Cats that is um, it just beckons from across the room. And there's also a Pais- there's a Paisley Fender Telecaster guitar and Paisley Fender Telecaster bass in which Fender tried to reach out to a younger audience and to cashed in on it seems the vogue for psychic wannabe psychedelic des- designs i think so 
the long answer then, I was about to say this short, this is a long answer, is that uh, the guitars rhyme with the themes, the time periods, and the musical and artistic genres depicted in, in the art. One of the things reading the catalog got me thinking about was how comfortably guitars would fit within the context of an art museum's decorative arts department and, and that answer too. Leo Mazo, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Ty- Tyler. I appreciate this so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.